it's Flo, and this is my impression of a person having a phone conversation in the elevator. What? Yeah, no, I'm in the elevator. The elevator! Yeah! Anyway, I bundled our home and auto insurance through Progressive. No, bundled! We're gonna save big bucks now. No, bucks! Bucks! Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Hello? Hello? She hung up. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company Affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. The show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us Who's next on the team? Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe. Hello, everybody, and thank you for coming back and joining me today on Next on the Tee. We are brought to you today by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort. Folks, there isn't a better place to stay and play anywhere on the planet, and you'll see why I say that when you go online and check them out at FrenchLick.com. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have a couple of great guys that I get to share with you over the next hour or so. First up with me today is Chris Sheehan. Chris has had a great career as a PGA professional, working at some of the most prestigious golf courses in the country. Places like Bighorn Golf Club, which you'll recall hosted the Skins game and the battle at Bighorn between Tiger Woods and Sergio Garcia. He's also worked at Oak Hill and Inverness as well. We'll chat about that and a whole lot more when Chris joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, we'll get a return visit from our good friend, 2003 PGA champion, Sean McKeel. We'll talk with Sean about his preparations for this upcoming season. We'll see also what he thinks about the European Tour, allowing their players to wear shorts during pro-ams and practice rounds as well. Plus, we'll get his memories of playing in the Phoenix Open at TPC Scottsdale when uh, Sean joins me a little bit later here in this half hour. But I want to start off this week's show by wishing my mom a very happy birthday. I wouldn't be anywhere in life, Mom, without you. I love you so very much and hope you have a wonderful birthday. Can't wait to see you a little bit later today. Okay, let's start the show off right by helping you start your mornings off right. Go check out our friends over at Aroma Ridge because they offer an array of the finest mountain-grown gourmet coffees that you're going to find anywhere. Find them online at aromaridge.com. Their secret Hand-selected beans from a variety of coffee-producing countries from around the world. They roast those beans to perfection by their very own roast master. Their coffees are roasted specifically for you, and I mean that, specifically for you. And if you like a little flavor in your coffee, they have almost any flavor you can imagine. Plus, you can even mix and match flavors to create one of your very own. And not only are their coffees great, they are fantastic people as well. You're not going to find a better-tasting coffee or better people anywhere on the planet. And right now, they have a Valentine's Day special going on on their Wicked Jack's Rum Cake, Chocolate Rum Cake, and Red Velvet Rum Cake. 20 ounces of deliciousness, my friends. Check out their great products online at aromaridge.com. Next on the tee is brought to you today by our friends over at the French Lick Resort in French Lick, Indiana. Folks, you want to talk about a spectacular resort to both play golf and just relax and enjoy yourself? Well, you're not going to find a better place than the French Lick Resort. Go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself. And let's hear a word from our friends over there. Now's the time to plan that golf getaway you've been dreaming about at French Lick Resort. We have new Golf Academy packages for 2016, guaranteed to take your game to the next level. Try our one-day Quick Fix Academy for golf emergencies. 
For more in-depth learning, try the Game Changer, designed to make you a better player. Our staff professionals are ready to work with you at French Lick Resort. Did you know there's only one place in the country that you can play courses designed by two members of the World Golf Hall of Fame on the same property? The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort make us an ultimate golf destination for 2016. Check out the Ultimate Golf Package, the Hall of Fame Package, and other great offerings at FrenchLick.com. Let 2016 be that year you finally take your dream golf getaway at French Lick Resort. Play the courses champions play. Yeah, folks, it's spectacular. I had the privilege of taking my family there last summer, and we're really looking forward to going back. The French Lick Resort needs to be on your list of places to stay and play. And oh, by the way, my friends, they also have a casino right there on property as well. For more information and to book your stay, go to FrenchLick.com. And every week here on Next on the T, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in every branch of our military. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families make so our freedoms and liberties are protected. We also want to thank our veterans and your families for all you've done for us over the years. It's through the strength of our military personnel that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to have Next on the T be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. Also want to remind our veterans, be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org, a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information specifically geared towards our veterans that I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial. Again, go to globalvoiceforveterans.org. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Chris Sheehan. Let me give you some more background on Chris. He was the captain of the baseball and hockey teams at Trinity College up in Hartford, Connecticut, and was an all-region and all-American nominee in both. Somehow, golf won out over baseball and hockey, and we'll find out why here in just a moment. But Chris won the 2003 Western New York PGA Section Assistant Professionals Championship and tied for 38. 38th at the uh, Taylor made uh, Adidas National Assistant Professional Championship later that same year. He's been a PGA professional since 1999, and he has worked at clubs like Bighorn Golf Club, Oak Hill Country Club, a club near and dear to my next guest, Sean McKeelshart, Inverness Golf Club, Tuscany Reserve Golf Club, uh, Gateway Golf and Country Club, and he's now the director of golf at Pelican's Nest Golf Club down in Bonita Springs, Florida, near Naples. He spent six seasons working alongside three of Golf Digest's top 100 instructors, including Two of Claude Harmon's sons and, uh, and, and brothers of Butch, Bill Harmon and Craig Harmon, plus Todd Stones as well. In 2009, Chris was the uh, PGA South Florida Section's Private Club Merchandiser of the Year. He's also the president of the Southwest Florida Chapter of PGA Professionals, and he's with me again this morning on Next on the Tee. Chris, thanks so much for being a part of the show with me this morning. How are you, my friend? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. This is a neat opportunity. I look forward to the show. Uh, thanks, Chris. So, Chris, you know, just you know, let's start at the beginning. When, when was the first time you started to play the game of golf, and who was the person to put the golf club in your hands? Well, my, uh, you know, my dad was a was a uh, uh, all American hockey player at Providence College in the '60s. Uh, he got into golf after he graduated. Uh, he was a high school history teacher, and then became a high school principal. And we played sparingly. We had four boys. Uh, we were all hockey and baseball players. Golf really wasn't a priority in the family, and uh, 
with one income, low income, we really couldn't afford to play. But uh, we would play once in a while at an Air Force base in Narragansett, Rhode Island. Uh, and uh, I remember my first victory when I was probably about eight. <laughs> I think I just had 127 and beat my brother, who went on to play the PGA Tour for many years. So I should have quit then, but uh, I really wasn't <laughs> into golf until college. Um you know, as many years as I was at college, I should be a doctor and not a golf professional. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was, I got actually uh, took a semester off involuntarily when I was in college, and my dad uh, hired a math teacher at a boys' parochial school, who ended up becoming the general manager at a, at a little club off the coast of Connecticut called the Hay Harbor Club on Fisher's Island, New York. And one year, Billy Harmon came to do a golf school, and I was the fetch boy. Uh, I was in charge of the tennis courts and cutting grass and they needed a volunteer to help and I helped Billy with with the golf school and uh and that summer the the junior program went from 30 kids to 100 kids and I was I had been around golf my whole life and just happened to be in the right place at the wrong time after doing the wrong things so uh it was uh it was interesting so Billy offered me a job back in his boat on the back in his car under the boat I went out to California and uh and he sent me over to Craig at Oak Hill and uh when I was leaving Oak Hill I didn't quite get the jobs that I wanted and, and turned down the jobs that I did get. So I went to Inverness to teach uh, for two years for David Graff. I was the director of instruction there. And then uh, by force of nature, my wife got injured. Uh, I got injured and we ended up just packing up the car, driving down to Florida about 12 years ago. And here we are, beautiful uh, Pelican's wow. Nest Golf Club in Bonita Springs. So, yeah, it's been a, been a long, uh, strange sort of blowing in the wind type of career for me. I've been lucky and, and uh, uh, certainly tried to make the most of it and uh, try to help PGA professionals and our members and amateurs alike as much as I can by staying involved and, and doing the best that I can do. So, Chris, you know, kind of going back, as you mentioned, you know, your father being being a hockey player, you were you were really good at baseball and hockey, you know, in in high school and college. How how, how did golf end up winning out over either baseball or hockey? Well, as uh, as the window of opportunity closes as you get older, uh, hockey I had an opportunity to play. I went to a few of the U18 Olympic tryouts uh, up in Lake Placid and uh, had an offer to play professional hockey in Russia and Spain that I turned down because wow. I really wanted to play baseball as well. Um, had opportunities to play baseball at Duke and didn't go and I uh, wanted to play both so I went to a real small school in Hartford and uh, played hockey and baseball and by that time you're sort of you're, you're either that good where you can continue to play for a career, or you're not that good, and you got to find something else to do. And it just so happened my junior year of college, I was around a golf club, and uh, I worked from 5 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon, and then I had the rest of the day because I was stuck on an island to do whatever I wanted to do, which was play golf. And I learned how to play uh, at the Hay Harbor Club. Uh, fortunately, met the Harmons along the way and uh, and got into the club business uh, really because of kids, Uh Seeing someone smile for the first time, and uh, for the first time, excuse me, and uh, is a neat feeling. And uh, I've always taken pride in being able to teach someone how to hit a golf ball better, and uh, and enjoy their facility a lot better, enjoy their after work lifestyle a lot better. So, golf's been a good fit for me. And Chris, uh, as I was kind of doing all the all the research on you, a couple of things you know jumped out first. 
I read an article that said last May 27th, you and uh, along with uh, assistant pros Ryan Sanders and Dan Garonski, uh, you guys played 378 holes of golf in a 10-hour span that, that ended up benefiting, I think, several local charities. You guys raised $14,000, which is, which is absolutely amazing. But 378 holes of golf in 10 hours? How did you pull that off? <laughs> it was our uh it was our second year doing it and uh as as officers of the Southwest chapter our we have a tournament of charities program where we have six beneficiaries uh the Florida Gulf Coast University boys and men's uh men's and ladies golf teams um Southwest Florida Junior Golf um uh, a drug and alcohol addiction outfit uh for kids here in Southwest Florida and there are several pros that do things uh, throughout the year to raise money. And what we decided to do was uh, I started on one, Dan started on ten, and Ryan started somewhere in the middle. We teed off at 8 o'clock and then just went round and round and round and round and round and round and round until it got dark. And uh, with the uh, the wonderful and uh, generous sponsorships of the, of the members here at the club, some folks played per hole finish. Some folks added extra dollars if you made some birdies. Um, some folks added money if you stayed alive, and, uh, and we then we did it. So it was neat. Uh, it was hard to walk for the next four days, but uh, it was fun and, and uh, certainly worthy recipients of our of our efforts. And uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, things that I can do to enhance people's lives through golf um, is a rewarding thing experience for me. So it was glad to do it. Uh, I've already started stretching and working out for the next one, which is coming up probably in May. So uh, we'll see if we can cap that fourteen thousand again this again this year. So it'll be neat. But are you sprinting after the golf? I mean, if you look at it, you know, you do the math, right? It was six hundred well, minutes. Yeah. You know, I think you guys spent like ten hours, three hundred and seventy. I mean, you're like it's like under two minutes a hole. It's yeah, it's it's about that. It's six and a half rounds of golf, just about. And uh, you know, when you're in a golf cart and you're by yourself. And uh, once you once you play the first round, uh, we we just take the pins down, so we know where the flags are. And uh, the members are generous enough to uh, to allow us the golf course for the day. And uh, it, it's just uh, hit drive, hit drive. You know, hopefully one putt or two putt, and then you just go keep going and going and going. But uh, once you get through the first one, the first round usually takes you know an hour and a half, and then the the next ones take a little bit less because you're not putting uh, the flag in and out. But uh, it's neat. It's fun. It's exciting, and uh, you know, you get to hole fifty, and you're like, I can't believe I'm only halfway there. <laughs> but uh, eventually, you start to work downhill, and 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 you get there, and uh, you just keep in mind what you're doing, why you're doing it, and uh, and you move forward. Wow, that's great. And and Chris, I read that uh, you're a big proponent uh, of the Tee It Forward program. Talk about that, and 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 what you what led you to be a big believer in that. And if you also don't mind telling the Claude Harmon story about uh, playing the right tee box. Yeah. And I, you know, years later, I, I guess that that was, was a story that somehow stuck in my head. But uh, when I worked at Oak Hill, probably around 2002 or one, you know, and the Harmon brothers are, are uh, world-class storytellers, but uh, the Harmon family used to have what they call the Harmon cup. And, uh, at the time, the four brothers were alive. Dick has now uh, passed away. Um, but you had Billy, who was at Newport Country Club at the time. Uh, Dick was at River Oaks in Houston. Craig was at Oak Hill. And uh, and I think Butch was was, was still in Vegas uh, at the time. And each brother would bring 
12 members with him, and they'd go out and they'd play a 48-man Ryder Cup, and the brothers would, and the father uh, at the time, Claude, who was the 1948 Masters champion and had set the record, the scoring record at the time when he had won it. Uh, he was there as well, kind of late in his, his years, and uh, the, the five of them, the brothers and the dad, would go out and they'd just follow the matches, but they'd play behind him. And uh, I remember the story he told. They were on the west course, the first hole of the west course, which is a real short par four. It's maybe 340 yards down a hill. And the brothers get out of the cart, and they all go to to the, you know, the the the, the blue tees, which is the back tees, and and they hit their their tee shots. And the father gets out of his cart, and he starts walking forward. And they said, you know, Dad, where are you going? And uh, he said, uh, What do you mean? He said, My play from up here. And uh, and they and the boys said, Dad, that's the ladies' tee. He says, No, 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 this is my tee. I've been hitting fairways and greens my whole life, and I'm not about to stop now. So he knew <laughs> even as one of the most accomplished players ever that that golf is designed so you can hit a tee shot uh get somewhere near or on the green and have an opportunity to to one putt or two putt and make par that's why they measure the game on pars and he wasn't about to quit late in his years he he had an understanding of how he was supposed to play what it was supposed to feel like and look like and and he just sort of said this is where i'm playing from so years down the road um when i got here to pelican's nest uh, it was sort of the, the, the inaugural tee it forward campaign for the PGA, the USGA, and all the all the partners that were involved. And and sure enough, Pelican's Nest had a had a gold, a white, um, a gold, a blue, a white, and a red. And you know, colored tee markers are typically either gender gender specific, or there's some sort of uh, expectation of what your handicap is and where you should play. And we had folks that uh, in Southwest Florida, you know, you join when you're 55 or 60, and the age as you go, and the club's 30 years old. So we had we had folks playing the white tees, shooting 100, and it just didn't seem to fit what they were used to seeing, what they were used to playing. They'd played golf for many years of their life, and they were used to reaching holes. And it's certainly uh, they're both difficult golf courses here, but we decided to throw in a, a black tee, which was ahead uh, of the white. So now we had uh, five tees. And then a few years later, they felt that that was uh, too short, so we put in a gray tee, which was between the black and the white. And uh, so now we had six tees. And and then we decided, you know, a few years ago that, you know, we didn't want to make anybody feel obligated to play a certain tee based on the color of it, so we changed them all to Roman numerals. Um, and now, believe it or not, uh, last year uh, we started a two-year program at the club to uh, to reconstruct all the greens and the bunkers, the original greens and bunkers. And in doing so, we took the old greens uh, material and we built uh, 18 regulation 25 by 25 tees uh, at a 4,000-yard mark. So the, that now allows all of our nine-hole women, our senior men, our beginner kids, uh, our, our veteran amputees that are members here, to play a golf course that actually fits their ability. So we now have at Pelican's Nest eight tee markers. They go from one to seven, and then the new course at 4,000 yards is called the scoring tee. And the reason we call it the scoring tee is not only is it going to fit uh, the, the physical and technical abilities of many of our golfers, but it's also an opportunity for our better golfers to go out and see how good they are with their wedges and uh, you know hit five iron and, and manage yourself off the tee and put yourself at the 100-yard marker and see how good you are from there. And uh, and when you find out how deficient you are in your short game and your wedge game, then it, it provides you an opportunity to focus your practice. As many you know legendary pros have always said, 
if I could do it over again, I'd hit wedges all day, not drivers. So we tried to right. build a facility to do that. And next year we'll have the Gator course. We'll redo that. We'll have two 4,000-yard golf courses that sit on the footprint of the original and uh, 18 options to fit all levels of play. So it's been great for us. And, and you know, Chris, do, do you find that people are receptive to the idea of, you know, because golf, you know, on, on some level, I mean, we all have egos, right? And we all, you know, hey, I can play, you know, I can play the blues, or I can play, you know, I, you know, with my buddies. I got, you know, one, you know, one of my buddies is, you know, we, we've been playing together for, you know, 20 years. He still shoots in the, in the, you know, 110s to 120s. So, but he always wants to play, you know, the same tees. Ah, oh, we're all going to play the same, right? And we keep telling him, Bob, move up, move up, go play the red tees. Who cares? Right? Make the game a little less frustrating for you than it is, you know, every single week when we play, or every single right. year when we play. So, I mean, do, do you find that people are receptive and are now starting to come off of our own individual egos that I can play from back there just like everybody else and are more receptive? You know, did the changing of the markers from colors to numbers or any of that sort of stuff get people to go, you know what, you're right, I need to play up here? It, it did, believe it or not. It, it's It's been a remarkable uh a remarkable migration to those forward tees. Um, you know, we can say that, you know, last year we had we had uh, more than 50% of our men's play, play from the five and six tees. And uh, not to pick on Bob, but Bob's never been any good. So Bob doesn't know what it's like to be good and have fun. And right. if you're good and, and you play at 7,000 yards, then that was fun. But eventually, you, you're, you know, your distance diminishes, your skills diminish, and and you're used to playing a game that was fun, that you could actually play some, somewhat successfully. And because Bob's never had any success, he doesn't know any better. And so in the story of Claude Harmon, he, he was good. He was the best club professional player that may have ever lived. And he knew what the game was designed to be. Um, now, if Bob can't hit it on the planet, you know that's a different story. But if Bob was tasted success at one point, and then all of a sudden he's shooting 110 when he used to shoot 85, those are the people that are moving up, the guys that have been playing golf at great clubs throughout the country. We have members here from Pine Valley and Baltusrol and Scioto. They they know what success is in golf. So the the real migration has been from those that really understand how the game is intended to be played, that have had success at some level during their career, and said, you know what, I'm tired of shooting 102. I want to go back to shooting 85. And we've had people that play the appropriate tees for them that, that haven't broken 90 in three years that are now shooting 78, 79, 81 because that's the golf course that fits their ability. It's the it's the golf course that leaves them a seven iron into the hole where they used to have when they were 30 or 40 years old. And now that they're right. 70 or 75 years old, they're hitting three woods. So it's, it, doesn't fit, it doesn't fit their games, and they're, they're migrating to the golf courses that now fit their games. And do you find that those people – come out and play more rounds of golf? Because i got to imagine, Chris, you know, golf is a frustrating enough game as it is, right? And, you know, trying to do all the things that we are trying to do and, you know, swing thoughts and this, that, and the other thing. But when you're walking off the course and you're shooting, you know, in the hundreds, it's not a fun game. You're frustrated. <laughs> it, I'm sure it affects, you know, if you're like me, it affects the rest of your day because you went out there and you hacked it around. And, and it, it just, you know, it, it, it's meant to be a fun game, right? We're meant to go out and have a good time. It's supposed to be relaxing, but it tends to be frustrating. But if you play the right tees, and now all of a sudden, you know, you've made some birdies, you, you know, you're shooting in the 70s or the low 80s. Now you've had some fun. It, it's got to impact the whole rest of your day. Do you find that people now enjoy coming out and they actually play more often? When they play the right tees, yeah, you just hit the nail on the head. It's uh, 
when you when we we have a membership that let's say five years ago was was 450 members and and today it's it's 530. So let's say we've had an increase of 80 members. Our rounds have increased almost 17,000. Wow. So the percentage of increase in rounds relative to the to the number of members that we've increased over those years is just just blows it out of the water. And you said it perfectly. Right. A guy who plays on Tuesdays and Thursdays and shoots 110, that's what he accepts. But a guy who goes out on Tuesday and shoots 78 and then comes back Thursday and shoots 79, he wants to come back on Saturday to see what else he can do. He's trying to beat that 78. He's not accepting shooting right. 110 anymore. So where we've seen we've seen the biggest rise in our rounds uh, is from our members, who instead of playing two or three times a week are now playing three, four, or five times a week. And as a, as a golf industry... Uh, you know, and this isn't a unique thought to me, but the goal is to, is to get them to your facility uh, when they're there, to get them to spend as much time as possible, and I don't mean pace of play. And then when they leave, you want them coming back as soon as possible. So the fact that we've been able to increase our rounds just through our, our real small membership base here, uh, through these through these uh, the golf course setup that, that we've been able to achieve over the last six years uh, has really has really made a marked difference on the club. And the attitudes of the members are, are better. They're having more fun. It's neat to see a woman who comes in and breaks 100 for the first time and hugs you, uh, a woman who's a 30 <laughs> handicapper at, that holds out a three-wood for a three on a par five because she can now reach. The, those are stories that we have. It's it's, And they're happy. And then when they're happy, they got to come to the club that night because they got to brag and they got to buy drinks. That's right. they got to do all that stuff. So it's really the atmosphere at the club, according to you know anecdotal stories of before – uh, these changes happen to this club. Uh, it, it's just a better vibe. It's a better place. People are happy. The club's happy. The club's rolling along, and we're improving our facilities, and our membership is growing, and our rounds are, improve, are growing. So it's a very happy place to work. The Pelicans Nest has done a great job. We have great leadership in our board members and our president, Nick Spain. Um, but we've been we've been blessed, and uh, now you know we're all in the right place at the right time uh, and making the right That's decisions to, to continue to grow the game. Ah, kudos to you guys. That's great stuff, Chris. Yeah. Chris, I want to get uh, get get some of your memories from some of the some of the big places that uh, you've had the opportunity uh, to work at. You started out as an assistant pro at Bighorn Golf Club, which is people will remember has been the site of the you know the Skins game, the Battle at Bighorn, a couple of other events. You know, on the Champions and PGA or LPGA tours have been there as well. And you were there during the Battle of Bighorn, which was you know staged between Tiger Woods and Sergio Garcia. Sergio winning that one one up and I'm curious what do you remember about that event well I remember uh the weeks leading up to it uh to to watch uh you know the golf course be set up with lights on the last three or four holes um go through sort of a a a walking rehearsal of it uh it was it was a unique atmosphere um to be anywhere around great players, um, to be anywhere around a club that, that commits to showcasing the game at their facility and showing off their facility is a special treat. Um, whether, whether you're hosting a PGA Championship, a Ryder Cup uh, that I've seen done uh, at, at Brookline, um, hosting those battles, uh, hosting the senior, the inaugural uh, World Senior Match Play was neat to be around those 16 fellows for, for a week or so. Uh, Inverness had the U.S. Senior Open when I was there, which is neat. Uh, you know, just Bighorn is is just one of those unique uh, Xanadu type places on earth. It's uh, uh, R.D. Hubbard's been running it for a long time. They've got helipads and 
Uh, my fondest memory, believe it or not, of Bighorn, the, 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 the big men's member guest was sponsored by Rolls-Royce, Bentley, American Airlines. <laughs> oh, my. It was one of those things you're like, what? what? What's happening here? And they bring up the Bentleys at the <laughs> pairings party. And Toby Keith, who was, you know, a week before is the country uh, singer of the year, he's doing the concert at the pairings party. I mean, it was just oh, off my. the charts, first class, wild. They're selling Bentleys, you know, for cash that night. and. The first day of the tournament, a guy named Rick Caldor from Manhattan, Kansas, gets a hole in one, and it's on the it's on the Bentley hole, and he just didn't get a Bentley; he got to design his own. I mean, it was, oh my it was a, it was just a wild time, and and working for Billy Harmon uh, was uh, was a neat experience. His energy, his passion, um, it, it was just great. Uh, we had a wonderful staff. Uh, we did it all, and uh, I was blessed to be there for three years. Yeah. Oak Hill was were, uh, Oak Hill was Oak Hill was the, the you yeah. know the old maid. It's uh, the at the time they were the only club to host every hostable major championship. Um, leading up to the to the 2003 PGA, uh, great great buzz. Uh, that's the thing that that really struck me about Oak Hill was um, when you host a, an event of that magnitude, you literally need almost every single member of the club to help volunteer. And to see a you know fifteen hundred people pull together to showcase their facility for a week to ten days, uh, give up their lockers, give up their clubhouse, give up their backyards, um, is just an amazing sight to see. Um, amazing sight to see. And uh, it, Inverness was no different. Inverness was uh, very old, traditional. Uh, probably the hardest short hole I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I'd still like to go back and try it again because. It was just so hard. The 18th hole in Inverness is just an awesome hole. Um, and to see those members pull together uh, for a major championship and be around those players, and in general, just for all of these clubs to, to give up their facilities to showcase the world of golf to people, uh, is a tremendous commitment, tremendous sacrifice for these folks, and uh, I was proud to be a part of, of many of them. Yeah, no, I mean, you, yeah, you talk about Inverness. You want to talk about a site, uh, you know, that hosted, you know, some great events. Boy, you know, four U.S. Opens, two Senior Opens, a couple of PGAs, and a and a U.S. Amateur. The site of Ted Ray's victory back in 1920. That was also Bobby Jones's first U.S. Open appearance. Was was at at Inverness, and boy, I, I you know, I, you want to talk about a course that was cruel to one to one guy. Poor, you know, Greg Norman got uh, a couple of majors snatched. You know, from his uh, his right. jaws, uh, you know, on, on that golf course. So I, I can't imagine Greg Norman ever goes goes back to the scene, the scene of that crime. But uh, boy, what what a historical place to be! And obviously, Oak Hill being near and dear to uh, to my boy uh, Sean McKeel's heart, who's going to join me here in in just a moment. But um, yeah, and as you and I were talking, um, you had left uh, just just a little bit before the PGA Championship back in, in two, back in two thousand and three. But you and Sean have. Uh, have communicated over time. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I, I left in '03. My my three years of service with Craig were up. That was sort of his program. Uh, you work there three years, go out and get yourself a job. And uh, and I remember uh, in 2003. The other thing is too. You mentioned Norman getting that snatched away. The the bunker shot Bob Tway hit to, to, that he hold out yeah. on 18. If you ever get Bob Tway on, give him a, ask him if, if if he could do it again with a thousand balls. It's one of the hardest shots in the world. Uh, the green the green slope's probably eight degrees away from me on pins right near him. It's just so hard. And the shot Sean hit into the 18th hole at 
at Oak Hill to a foot, if that. Uh, I've had that shot many times, and it's just it's such a hard shot. So the quality of player players that these guys are on the venues that I've been able to play and and, and play somewhat successfully and, and certainly get my head kicked in more often than not. But uh, the shots that these guys hit, and I was able to see it firsthand with my brother for a long time, but they're just incredible players, incredible, incredible talents that, that uh, you got to be just the cream of the crop to have any success out there. And to win a major like Sean did and to win several majors like Greg did, and uh, it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable when you play golf you're, for most of your life and you teach it and you see people go in and out of success and struggles and uh those guys are just and girls uh, are just unbelievable talents. It's hard to describe. It's hard to describe. And Chris, um, a couple more before we let you go. First, for for weekend hackers like me that uh, might be getting ready to go play, if we are, if we're lucky enough to leave, to live out on the west coast or someplace where it's warm today, down in your area <laughs> in, in, in Naples, what give us give us a tip that might uh, actually help us shave a, a stroke or two off our scores today. Well, it, it, the first thing I'd say is you got to play the right golf course that fits your abilities. Uh, you know, it, you can only have an ego if you feel like you're going somewhere. So if you don't feel like you're going to play in the next PGA Championship, you should play a golf course that fits your ability and have an honest assessment of your game because setting yourself up for for failure, it's just not going to add to any enjoyment of your game. So I ask everybody, and, and certainly we're a working model of it, but please, uh, you know, in, for for most for the most part, you should be up at one or two tees and play the appropriate tees that fit your ability. The second thing is, you know, you hardly ever see member or amateurs hit it solid, um, so they they tend to leave a lot of approach shots short, which puts a lot of stress on their short game, uh, and they don't tend to practice their short game as much as their full swing. So. Uh, be realistic about about your yardages. Uh, the seven iron you used to hit 175 probably wasn't 175. It was 160 when you remembered it. And now it's down to 140. So make sure you always play play the appropriate clubs into into the holes to give yourself opportunities for for shorter chips, uh, shorter putts. Uh, but you got it's about getting it in the hole, and and uh, it's it's always fun to have that one great shot per round and. Uh, you know, folks like you and I in a day where we play around a golf, we might hit three good shots. And and the way you thought it was supposed to look, the way you thought it was supposed to feel, um, the way it looked, the way you thought it was going to look in the air, uh, for a good player, uh, that's two to three to four around. And, and the average player gets zero to one. So you got to be realistic about your abilities. you got to be realistic about what your goals are. So when you go to play golf the next time you play, really have a, a little head check at, at at the front door and say, all right, I'm going to have some fun today. I'm going to see how good I am for the appropriate golf course uh, that fits me. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to say I'm going to have fun. And I'm going to try and hit two good shots today, not 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 50, just two. And then that that's what keeps you coming back. Ah, that's great advice. And, Chris, before I let you go, I'm a, I'm a big Steelers fan, so I really appreciated your comment on Twitter that Cincinnati <laughs> equals losers after that game, so thank you for that. Who do you got uh, tomorrow in the big game? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, uh, being a lifetime New England sports fan, all Boston stuff, um, I've always been a – I've always been a, sort of an anti – Peyton Manning, um, but I think it'd be nice to see him win. I don't know if they have the firepower. It'd be interesting to see what happens in the first quarter. Um, you know, Carolina's gotten off some hot starts here in the playoffs and, and, and at the end of their season. If they can get a 10-14 point lead early on, I'm not sure. I'm not sure Denver can come back. 
uh, and then, but you got the old guard with lots of experience. I'm sure he's got some wrinkles up his sleeve. Uh, might have a few different cadences at the line of scrimmage, uh, but I think the horses are, are really running with Carolina, so I'm going to take Carolina. Uh, let's say 27-21. All right, Carolina 27-21, got you down. Chris, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to uh, to be a part of the show. You're fantastic. I hope you'll come back and do it again with me sometime. You call me anytime. It was a pleasure to be a part of it. Thank you, Chris. All right. Take care, Chris. Take care. That's Chris Sheehan. He is uh, – well, you talk about a great guy. Boy, that was that was a lot of fun. You can. He's the director of golf now at Pelican's Nest Golf Club down in uh, Bonita Springs, Florida, right there near Naples. You can check those guys out online. Beautiful golf course down there. But uh, very much thank you to, uh, to Chris Sheehan for being a part of the show. All right, we're going to get to uh, my next guest, Sean McKeel, and we'll do that on the other side of this uh, station identification. You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. And now back with me to answer more of your questions and share more of his stories and insights. On the French Lick Resort guest line is uh, our good friend and 2003 PGA champion, Sean McKeel. Good morning, Sean. How are you, my friend? Hi, Chris. I'm doing well. How are you? Ah, fantastic. Thank you. So, Sean, I you know, I believe you're down in Florida now working on your game. How how are things shaping up? Uh it's well it's been good so far. Um had a lot of rust. I took some time off during the winter time and uh guess I got guess I got down here on Monday. So uh just kinda getting my feet wet and spent the last couple of days just really hitting hitting a lot of short shots and uh, uh just kinda working my way back in it. But all's all's been going great so far. So, Sean, is is it easy to pick up a club and sort of get right back in the groove? You mentioned rust. You know, I remember Mr. Nicholas saying that after, you know, laying off over the winter that, you know, he and Jack Grout and later Jim Flick, you know, the guys that he worked with, his coaches, they'd sort of start all over again, beginning, you know, right you know right with the basics, even starting, you know, out with his grip to make sure that, you know, his grip was right and his stance was right and his posture was good so that, you know, he didn't start off developing any bad habits. Do you, is it? Do you get right back in, in position, or do you really, you know, you know, tear it all down from the beginning and start over? No, I mean I don't start over, but certainly, uh, you know, you think about those types of things. I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, when I was younger and playing uh, regularly, uh, you know, I might take a week or so off. I might have a week or two off um, between tournaments, or even in the winter time, I didn't take that much time off. It's so difficult to come back. Um, uh, you know, I kind of, uh, it's just a bad feeling. When you don't touch a club for five or six weeks, so you really need to kind of get back into, you know, as you're talking about the fundamentals of the game. And, um, of course, you know, I've always got a club in my hands. Even if it's back home, it's just sitting around. I've always got a club in my hands. But it's so difficult because your body, is, you know, gets used to moving. When you get you know, you get into the summertime, you know, your body's used to moving and, and uh <clears throat> when you're when you're taking that much time off and you come back, the ball doesn't look right. The ground is just it just it's very difficult to kind of get back into it. And it's uh, maybe the last time that I that I take that much time off. I mean, I certainly have thoughts of you know um, you know a lot more competition in the next few years. So I think that this this may be the last time I take more than a couple weeks off. I just can't. I hate the feeling coming back. It's just too difficult to get back. Um, it takes me a week or so before I even get, get comfortable hitting balls again. So 
that's not a good feeling. So, Sean, take us through your your practice routine. How do you spend your time on the range? Well, I spent uh, Tuesday um, the majority of my time. I was probably here for five or six hours, just kind of getting a short start. But I I spent the first probably three three hours just chipping and putting, and um, uh, that's at least that's how I've kind of started my practice the last couple of days. Um, you know, when I'm playing more, yeah, it always starts with the short game. Um, but as I said, you know, it takes a little time when you've taken time off to kind of, I call it finding the ground. Um, you know, when you put a ball down for the first time, uh, you know, after taking some time off, it, it's, it, the ball just doesn't look, doesn't look right in your stance. Your body just doesn't feel right. You know, you're looking down. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of things that you have to overcome. But uh, my practice routine when I'm playing, I would say, is pretty consistent. It's you know usually starting with a short game, and I suppose that's changed over the years as I've gotten a little bit older. Uh, it takes a little bit longer to kind of loosen up my fingers and my hands. Um, you know, and so I like to have you know I like to get everything loose and and everything, so I spend 10, 15 minutes just chipping the ball and then hit a few putts. And, um, you know, I, so I spend a lot more time now in my warm-up. I used to be able to show up for 45 minutes, and uh, as kind of time is catching up to me, I'm, I'm starting to meet my caddy an hour before now. So it's taking me a little bit longer um, to get there. So you talk about starting off with, with your short game and, and spending a lot of time, you know, on that and putting – do you, do you spend actually more time on the range and around the practice greens, or do you actually you know start to work your way into spending more time actually out on the golf course and maybe playing multiple golf balls out on the golf course to to get a get a better feel? Well, those are the things that I've I've started to do in the last year year and a half. Um, I spent a lot of time on the driving range, and um, and you know you asked me one time what the best piece of advice that I'd ever gotten. And it yeah. was from my college coach, Sam Carmichael, and he told me to stay off the range. That's his, That was his lasting yeah. thought to me as I departed Indiana University. And and to an extent, he was certainly right. And um, I think I listened to that uh, advice. I took it to heart for a while. And then as I kind of felt like my game was either slipping or I started working with a new teacher or whatever, I started spending more and more time on the on the, on the the driver range. Um. I would say some of that was just going through the motions, just hitting balls, uh, and that's, that's yeah. probably not a good way to be. But over the last year, year and a half, I have this. I have spent a lot more time on the golf course. I, I take 15, 20 minutes. Usually I go work out before, so I'm, I'm warmed up. Um, but I uh, spend 15, 20 minutes just hitting a few balls, again, finding the ground, um, you know, with my, with my swing and everything, and I just go out and play, and I just play around all day. Um you know, fortunately, my golf course back home at Ridgeway Country Club is where I play most of my golf. Um, you know, it's usually not that crowded um, at the time I go out to play. So I go out there and hit a couple of drivers, and I chip and putt around every green and, and those types of things um, just to kind of simulate uh, different shots. You know, if you sit there around the practice screen, you drop 15, 20 balls, you kind of stand there and hit the hit the same shot over and over, and it's okay to do that a couple times, you know, hit a couple couple balls in the same spot, but you really need to be varying up your practice, uh, your targets especially. So um, I have spent a lot more time playing. Sean, I wanted to 
get your thoughts on uh, on uh, some things going on right now in and around the tour. The guys are at TPC Scottsdale, the stadium course this week. You played out there at the Phoenix mm-hmm. Open. Curious to get you what you remember about you know the, the Phoenix Open, and is that the rowdiest event out there on the PGA Tour? Oh, certainly is. It certainly is. Um, you know, I never, I never really enjoyed it to be honest with you. Um, I didn't. I, I just have. Um, I always had. I seem to have a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, kind of going into the to the golf tournament, just thinking about this. You know, the 16th hole, and if I was starting on one, it was always my goal to try to be under par by the time I got to 16. And there are some definitely some mean spirited people, and I but, I but it looks to me like people are just having a good time now. And I think um, maybe some of that was just a mental hurdle that I needed to get over. But I never I never really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, when you walk into that uh, arena, if you will, it's just uh, you know you're always kind of on stage when you're out there between the rows. But it's just more uh, present when you when you walk into that. Uh, you know, I heard Peter Jacobson call it walking it into the walking into the cauldron or something. I think isn't what he said yesterday, <laughs> and that's what it feels like. You know, um, it's uh, it's just it's unique. You know, you're just kind of enveloped in this uh, sea of people and skyboxes and and things of that. And it's it's really not that difficult of a shot. Um, you know, it's probably a nine or eight iron or something like that. Um, and so you're not really worried about making making a big number like you would be at 17 at Sawgrass. Um, I mean, imagine playing Sawgrass and having the amount of people in the, grand, in the grandstands around that place. It would be really, really intimidating. But, um, you know, it's just something I think you learn to embrace. Uh, try to have fun with it. I've, I've been watching it a little bit on TV, and uh, everyone seems to be really enjoying it. And for those, you know, that don't don't enjoy it, uh, they don't play there. And... Um, I was never to that point. I was never to the point where I can't stand this, um, you know, that I'm, I'm not ever coming back here. It was never, never like that for me. But there are anxious moments, and then they start on the first tee because when you tee off in the afternoon, you can hear the, the crowd at the clubhouse, uh, whatever it is they're singing or chanting or who their, you know, targets are that day. I mean, they um, they are a loud and boisterous group, but um, – it's interesting to see, but I, I think just one, you know, once a year is probably probably all the PJ Tour I think can handle. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, first round Bubba Watson right, got booed when he came to the to the 16th because of some of the derogatory remarks he made about the course changes that time Tom Weiskopf made to kind of make the course play a little tougher. And I mean, the fans, they let him have it, even as he stood over the ball for crying out loud. And I mean, he, yeah. he took it really well because he stuck it to 11 feet and then, and then made birdie. But it seems like etiquette sort of goes out the window when, when you play, you know, that hole. Uh, it, it does. I mean, um, you know, again, I, I've never really been somebody that, that really needed, uh, needed everything to be quiet. I don't, I'm not bothered by too much. I'm not bothered by people that are moving around. I've, I don't see a lot of things. Um, and some people, I think, just kind of use that as a crutch. You know, the one thing about Bubba is I wish that he would stop apologizing for the things that he says. I wish he would, if you're going to say something, and, and certainly he would have put some thought into it because he's interviewed every week, I wish he would just stop apologizing. It's totally fine to to not like a golf course, um, 
you know, he didn't call out anybody in specifics, you know, specifically. He just said he didn't like the golf course. He said the only reason he was there was because he has three great sponsors. And, you know, okay. Right. You know, don't apologize for it. If you're going to say it, uh, you know, either, either think own about it. what you're going to say prior to answer it and own it. And if people want to challenge you and you want to follow up with them, uh, you know, in another interview, then go ahead and do it. But I'm tired of, of him making these statements and then apologizing for them. And, and I think we've all probably done it, but not to the extent that he does it. And um, he he gets a bad rep. And um, I like Bubba. I've played with him. Uh, you know, his father died about a week before mine, and we had talked on the phone, um, you know, in 2010 in October when, when both of our parents passed. And uh, I've enjoyed playing with him. I, he's an incredible talent. I, I, I love I love the way he plays the game. I just wish that that he could he could uh, own some of these statements that he's that he's making because he's not always off base. Um, you know, people ask for opinions of players, and when right. they give them, um, you know, they're ready to be just kind of dismissed and and thought of as a you know whiny you know PJ Tour player. Yeah. Um, so that, 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 those are some of the frustrating things. But I was glad to see he did make birdie. And I don't, I don't know what he shot yesterday, but uh, he's too good of a player. He shot to back to back these things. Nine. Yeah, yeah, he, bur- so he birdied played, round yeah. one. He bogeyed it round two. So I'm sure they yeah, cheered when yeah. he bogeyed it in round two. I'm sure they did. But I mean, you know, those. Hey, you know what? What? You know, it doesn't really matter. But he, uh, um, he, he, he hung in there. He could have just said, you know, after he made those statements and realized, well, maybe I should have said that. He didn't. He didn't. You know feign an injury and, and fly home. <laughs> he, he stuck it out there on Thursday, you know, so he's, he's still there battling it out. And I guess if he could just, um, now, you know, of course that, 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 uh, that abuse doesn't, doesn't always stay there at 16. It, it, it travels. Um, you know, if you ruffle some feathers out there, I mean, they're going to find you on the first hole and, uh, I've seen it happen. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it happen. I don't remember who I was playing with, but we, somebody said something. I have to think about it now. Who it was? I don't even remember what year it was. It was probably like oh six, oh seven, something like that. And and we had to have security come out there and and oh uh, and take somebody off. They were just yelling, yelling the whole day, and um, really in the whole back nine. So it just it it just you know, you, like I said, you find the wrong person. He's gonna he's gonna come out of the audience around sixteen. He's gonna follow you around. So. Oh it's a unique thing, but you know what? They uh, they have fun with it. They uh, they generate a ton of money for charity, and um, you know the PJ Tour was kind of founded on that principle of giving back, and um, and that tournament right. has far exceeded um, any of the other events. I mean, I don't know how much money they make. I saw a post yesterday that said they're charging, so they're making like twelve million dollars on the sky boxes or fifteen million dollars in the. 250 wow. skyboxes that they have there. So I don't know where that came from, but they do it. They do a great job. And the course is using good shape. And I've not seen the changes that, that Tom made. Um, it looks like maybe there's a little bit of length added and maybe some bunkering had moved and stuff like that, but uh, it wasn't a total reroute. Um, it's a nice piece of property. It's uh, it, The pace of play is always pretty good there. Um, it's got a good mix of holes. Um and of course, it's uh, it's uh, it's green, and it's got it's just um, you know that ryegrass just really pops against the uh, the backdrop of that kind of dormant Bermuda and the desert setting. So um, it's uh, it's really it's really kind of a fun course to play. 
but it's uh, it's intimidating as heck when you uh, when you know what's facing you there at sixteen. Does it? Does it? You know, because it's you know set up like a stadium. Does it feel like you're sort of walking in and you're you're about to hit a golf shot either like in a football stadium or a baseball stadium? Well, yeah, and it's weird because it's got a unique sound when you hit. When, or when the guy's hitting hit in front of you, whether it's a practice round or a tournament round, when the ball comes off the club, it doesn't sound right. It kind of like echoes around in there. And that's the one thing that you see is that the noise is amplified because both sides are covered and you're at the very bottom. It's kind of like, you know, with a, you know, like playing in Seattle, I guess. It's pretty noisy, um, you know, and... Um, you know, you just you walk through this tunnel to get out there, and it's like as soon as you walk through, it's like you're a you know you're a rock star getting getting called out for a curtain call. It's really kind of cool, but um, you know, it's uh, it's just unique. Um, it's exciting um, at the same time as it is intimidating, but uh, it's unusual because you know on windy days. Uh, it, it, it's a difficult shot just because, you know, you're protected on all sides by the wind. So you kind of lose sight of that. You know, your mind gets so rattled. You're so rattled by having to deal with twenty-five or 30,000 people surrounding you that you sometimes forget you're playing golf. You just want to – sometimes you just want to grab the ball, put it in the ground, and just hit and get out of the way, you know, and be yeah. like, okay, this is a throwaway hole. And that's why I said that it's not that difficult of a hole. Surely you can just get a nine iron up into the front of the green and two putt or three putt and get out of there. And uh, <laughs> those are some of the feelings that I always have. I was like, oh, God, let me just get this thing in the ground and just hit and get out of there. But uh, it's unusual just because, you, uh, like I said, you, the, the conditions, uh, when you find wind and, and things of that nature, it, uh, it, it's difficult. Um, there are flags blowing and stuff like that, but you just don't have the feeling. I mean, everything is just totally calm once you walk inside there. And uh, it's a lot warmer um, and certainly uh, a lot noisier. And, Sean, the guy that you battled at the 2003 PGA Championship, Chad Campbell, he's playing pretty well. He shot a pair of 68s in the first couple of rounds, got himself near the top of the leaderboard. When yeah. you see a guy that you played against that's, you know, now you know near the top of the leaderboard, sort of the 40-something guys, do you root a little harder mm-hmm. for those guys than, than maybe, say, the young guns? Uh, I definitely do. I definitely do. Um, you know, I spent some time on, uh, uh, I guess on Tuesday, um, or Wednesday, I went down to Boca to the Champions Tour event and was, uh, I actually walked around, uh, I got there a couple hours early and of course had to get some free stuff, but, you know, walked around <laughs> with, uh, Todd Hamilton, who's a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, the kind of the looks that I got from all the guys that asked me what I was doing there, they thought they didn't think I was 50 yet. And I said, well, I'm not. So I enjoyed being around those guys. Um, and so, yes, I do I do appreciate um, – I mean, these are the guys I know. I mean, Chad and I have played right. a lot of golf together. Um, you know, Todd and I were talking about this the other day, that, you know, when you walk into – if you get into a tour event, I don't care which one it is, and uh, you go into the lunchroom to eat, I mean, you just don't know any of these people. And, uh, you know, the families and everybody's just gotten so young. It's certainly a young man's sport now. Um, you know, the kids are really coming into the tour uh, ready ready to play at such a young age. It really kind of blows my mind a little bit. But I certainly do root for guys that uh, kind of my contemporaries that, uh, that are having success and that, that are still out there battling. I mean, the golf, 
doesn't change. I mean, I think the things that really kind of hurt hurt guys in their forties are, you know, you start having families and, and things like that, and your and your time is divided uh, between you know between your spouse and your children and, and and your work and and everything else and the travel. It's uh, when you're younger, you don't have those responsibilities. It's pretty much twenty four seven golf, and so I think some of those things affect you when you get older. And injuries are also part of it as well. So um, I don't know how many guys are still playing in their 40s. I mean, I think of Steve Stricker and, of course, Lee Westwood and, and these guys and Tigers now 40. But uh, there's still a lot of great play out of these guys, and I and I, and I I root for all of them. And, I, you know, I still I – still, uh, that's why I'm down here working. And um, I still got a couple more years before the Champions Tour. So, um, you know, my goals are to, to – you know, try to get out there and contend and compete this year when I get in tournaments and to uh, get back on the web.com next year and, and, uh, and play golf and hopefully get one more shot at the PGA Tour because that's, uh, I feel like mentally I can do it. It's just, it's just whether or not the physical, um, the physical part of my game um, will be there. And if the injuries can stay away, then, uh, you know, I think I might have a good shot at it. And Sean, I, I want to go back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago about you know the media and and whether you know you know what Bubba said and that sort of thing. But from a media perspective, you know when you look at you know we ask we ask guys for their opinion, and when they give it mm-hmm. to us, sometimes we don't like it. And if we don't like it, is you know we, the media sort of hammers a guy, right? So I don't you know and you say you know boy you wish you know Bubba would own it a little more. Are, are we? Are we as a, a society, you know, from political correctness, right? We're all about being politically correct. So we've got to backtrack on any time we say anything controversial. But is it is it the media that is trying to get guys to backtrack? Is it the media that is trying to put the trap out there for you to step in so then we can hammer you over social media for it? I mean, what what's the biggest issue? You know, is it just because we don't like when guys have an opinion or we like having an opinion when it just – agrees with ours but we don't like it when it doesn't agree with ours yeah well i don't know i mean um you know social media has certainly made it um you know easier to complain but also easier to take hits um and of course there are always people out there that are that are trolling you as well i don't really feel like the media i feel like the media in golf um has a good healthy respect for the players and um but i know that it's got to get old when you when you interview a person and you ask them, you know, about the round or about anything in life, and they just talk about golf nonstop. I mean, we do a lot of things outside of the game of golf. We have a lot of ideas, a lot of, a lot of opinions on a lot of things. But um, I've never really been been bashed by the media. I've, I've kind of always felt like I um, thought about some of the things that I wanted to say. And of course, I wasn't as interviewed as often as some of these guys are today. I mean, you think about Tiger, and there were certainly a lot of people that wanted. Uh, that wanted Tiger to take a stand, whether it's in the black community or the Thai community or whatever, whatever community it is. I mean, um, they really wanted him to take a stand on social issues, and um, and he was just refrained from doing it. I mean, what good is that going to do? As anybody watches these debates, anybody that follows the government at all realizes there's not one person, even the President of the United States, can't spur on much change. Uh, it's just this this back and forth, and... Uh, it's the same thing with dealing with the with the media. I mean, you just there are certain things you're just not going to win. Um, they've always said the pen is mightier than the sword, and a lot of times these reporters and these writers, you know, they get the last word, and uh, you're not always able to to draft something 
um, you know, appropriate, you know, in a, in a response. So it's not like you're dealing with a debate. It's kind of like when someone reads an article in the newspaper, that's almost the end of it. Unless, unless a player has the opportunity to uh, get in front of the media to, to address those things, um, most of them are addressed on social media. And in 140 characters, I mean, I certainly haven't taken a creative writing course in a while, um, but um, it's hard to get out really what you want to say in 140 characters, but I guess you can keep going on. But um, I think most the media has uh, has changed. Um, you know, we go back to the old days where, and I bring up, you know, Dan Jenkins, you know, he always seemed to have access to the players. Um, of course, not being around in the 50s and 60s uh, when he was doing a lot of writing with Hogan and all those. I mean, he seemed to have unfettered ac- access to these guys, and there was no reason to try to tear these people down. Now it's it's who's going to get the latest scoop, who's going to get the latest gossip, and um, and it's frustrating. Some people just really um, feel great about themselves when bad things happen to other people. I mean, those people have existed forever, and they're going to exist, yeah. and they seem to be existing in greater numbers now. And... Uh, I'm amazed at some of the things that people say um, that they wouldn't say to your face. And I know they wouldn't say them to my face. Um, but, um, you know, you and I have had this discussion, um, you know, about my pers- my situation in the PGA. And if you watch any uh, sports show, I don't, you know, of course the Super Bowl is coming up tomorrow, so there's always a lot of talk about that. But, you know, now they're talking about Peyton Manning being the worst quarterback to ever play in the Super Bowl. And, of course, they're just going on the statistics this year. But I've put my life in perspective and, and uh, by watching some of these shows because people are getting bashed left and right. And I was like, you know what? It's out there. So these guys seem to, to handle it pretty well, so why can't I? So that's, that's, kind, of the, uh, that's kind of what I've chosen to do. But um, it, it, it's a hard, answer to, uh, a hard question to answer, Chris, really. I just... Uh, um, you know, the players, you need to be, uh, you need to recognize the fact that people are interested in what you're saying. There's a lot of people that are listening, um, particularly the, the, the younger people that um, you hope to try to get into this great game. Um, and um, we all do things, we've all done things that maybe haven't uh, come out right, haven't looked looked great on the golf course Um you know, and those are the mistakes that you make that you hope to learn from. But what you don't want to see happen is the same mistake being made over and over and just right. having an apology, uh, kind of a backhanded apology come out because either either your wife's yelled at you or your management company is saying, hey, we need to issue a statement. <laughs> I mean, that's the worst concept ever. We need to issue a statement. I just, I can't stand that. We have to own some of these things. Uh, right. I think we're all pretty educated. Um you know, either in life or, or school or both. And uh, we need to think about some of the things that we say. I mean, I, I've certainly, um, you know, said things and wanted to say things and have written things and but not sent that, uh, fortunately, my wife's a lawyer. So a lot of, a lot of the things that I want to write, <laughs> I kind of get approval from her first. But um, it's an interesting time. It really is. This social media. I don't know who who came up with this social media stuff, um, but um, it, it can be fun. It has been fun. Some of the things I've been using Facebook for 
or some of the things just with friends that I haven't connected with in a long, long time. And, um, you know, originally my plan with social media was to uh, kind of showcase the PGA Tour a little bit in my eyes. Um, I haven't been able to do that as much because I'm not playing as often. But uh, I do I do read. I, I follow a lot of people. I follow a lot of news, news sources. And so I get a lot of my news and stuff that way. But I won't partake or participate in in a lot of the negativity, and, and I'm quite shocked at the, some of the things that these people say. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on, on all counts. You know, I, I think the, the thing that I wish, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, I think similar to what you're saying, Sean, you know, if we all have opinions, and, you know, I, I embrace people that are willing to share their opinion, you know, controversial or not, but own yeah. it when you say it and not don't come out, you know, stand in front of a podium with a piece of paper in your hand that, you know, that your PR guy or gal wrote for you to, to so you can back off or back away from the thing that you said yesterday. I mean, we, we all have different opinions. We all don't share the same opinions. And it's okay to have a different opinion. What I hate about yeah. today's media, and I guess, I guess I'm, I'm part of it, I, I never view myself that way, but I guess I really am, yeah. is that we want to hammer the guy or gal who has a different opinion because we are so shocked that it's different from the one that I have that, you know, now I've got to go on social media and I've got to go on Twitter and on yeah. Facebook and on Instagram and, you know, insert name of social media platform here and hammer you because, oh, my goodness, you said this. I mean, yeah. crying out loud. We're allowed to well, have different it, opinions. That's what makes yeah. our country great. Well, I think, you know, in uh, in my case, when people make opinions, uh, or really in any case, that, uh, you know, you're not just spouting off at the mouth, that you actually have, you know, kind of a, a reason behind your opinion. I mean, whether it's, uh, you're talking about the presidential election, I mean, whether you like Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders, I mean, everybody, some people, there are some people out there that are going to vote Democratic. They don't care who the candidate is, how far left they are, or how far right the other person is. They're just going to vote that way, you know. And so, you know, um, you might have an opinion on that. But at least have some facts or some reasons behind your opinion as opposed to just getting up there and, and that's where you get into trouble. When you don't have any when, – when they get a follow-up question and you're kind of just standing there like, oh, well, I just said that because I don't like so-and-so or whatever. So um, I have no problems with, with debating debate, um, but I do have a problem with people just coming out and, and just saying these outlandish things to try to spur on um, – you know, a response so that you can um, capture that and, and write about it. And that's 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 what goes on. And uh, you see some of the guys, and, and I'm sure there's, there's uh, you know, some media that really get kind of get caught up in that, trying to figure out, okay, I don't really believe this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge this player and uh, see what his response is. And then it's kind of, it goes from there. Right. And, Sean, I want to get a couple of opinions from you, speaking of opinions, uh, before we let you go first. I wanted to get your thoughts on the on the European tour allowing their players to wear shorts during practice rounds and pro ams. What do you think about you know the opportunity to do that? Their chief executive Keith Pelly believes it's going to help modernize the game. What do you think? Yeah, I I I, I love it. I think it's great. Um, you know, I read that article a week or so ago as well, and um, you know some of the places that these guys are playing, and I've certainly been there. You talk about Southeast Asia, uh, Singapore, and Kuala Lumpur and Bangkok and all these places, it's just unbelievably hot. Um, you know, I don't know, 
you know, of course, you're not forced to do it, but I think it's great. I mean, it's a, it is a, it is a move in the right direction. Um, what what harm does it uh, does it does it do? You're not you're not coming across. I don't think unprofessionally. Um, I don't think the PJ Tour will ever allow it. And of course, of course, none of us ever thought they would allow caddies to wear shorts either. So um, we'll see how kind of how that moves. But I like it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, you say the PGA Tour might not allow it, and I don't disagree that, you know, that's that's going to be a tough change to get through for the traditionalists. But, you know, with, and, and and you know this a million times better than I, so please let me know. But when we play rounds of golf, you know, on a weekend, you know, the regular golfer, the hackers like me, we all wear shorts. That's what we wear. That's, you wear shorts to play the game, and I get the professional look and all that sort of thing. But I'm guessing, you know, from Tim Fincham all the way on down, if we're going to get together to play a round of golf on a Monday, a Tuesday, or a Saturday, not during yeah. the season, it's not a big event. Yeah. We're wearing shorts, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the outfit, and I think a lot of the younger, this younger generation of player, I think it may be, uh, maybe the group that, that kind of gets um, gets people heading in that direction for sure. Um, that is, that's the outfit that people are wearing. You know, nice pair of Bermuda yeah. shorts and skorts or whatever for ladies and. Um, that's what it is. I mean, you look outside the crowd, and in the crowd, who's wearing long pants out there? Nobody. Right. You guys are the so, only one wearing long pants. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you've seen, uh, even, in, even in business today, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people that wear suits. There are more relaxing, relaxing type days that people have where they don't have to wear a shirt and tie. They can wear maybe a blazer and a nice shirt underneath it or something like that. So, um, you know, maybe we're heading in that direction, but, uh, I, you know, I suppose I'm kind of a traditionalist in that way, and it's just I guess it's I guess it's just so ingrained in me that I don't really I've never even considered the alternative. Um, I've, I've never even thought about asking the tour or about about wearing pants just because that's just the way it's always been. And uh, so maybe we just need this younger group um, to be able to get things get things going. But by the time it passes, I won't want to see my legs anyway. <laughs> All right, Sean, one more before we let you get back to to practicing. You know, we got the big game tomorrow, and uh, we've talked football on this show, you and I, you know, several times, but who do you got? Well, certainly the sentimental favorite's got to be Peyton Manning for a lot of reasons. One, I think that uh, it may be his last game. Two, there's a lot of people that think that uh, there's no way that Eli Manning should have Super Bowl wins, <laughs> even though he's, a, he's an unbelievable quarterback. <laughs> Um, you know, but I think, I think Carolina, uh, it just seems to be their year. Um, you know, what they've lost one game, probably shouldn't have lost that game. And, uh, they look pretty good. Um, they're, they're gonna, they got a good defense, uh, their offense. I mean, I just worry about, you don't worry about Denver's defense, but you, you kind of worry about the offense and, and, uh, you know, what Peyton's able to do. I don't know what the weather forecast is like. Or not, but you know Peyton doesn't throw a great ball uh, now, and uh, he probably hasn't thrown a great ball in his entire career. He's one of the first quarterbacks I've ever seen that doesn't throw a spiral every on every throw. So, um, you know, weather would be, I think weather would be a huge issue for the Denver Broncos, but not sure what it's going to be. But I don't know. I kind of like Carolina. Uh, I'd say relatively new team. You know, they had D'Angelo Williams from Memphis. They moved him off to uh, moved him off to Pittsburgh. I hated seeing that. Right. Um, but um, you know, kind of all the things that Cam Newton has has kind of gone through from from his college days at Auburn to to 
to really kind of come into his own. I mean, he's an incredible talent. And um, I've always kind of been a Broncos fan, so I kind of like to see I like to see them win. But I, I, I think it's going to be a Carolina game. Well, I'll react to a couple of things. First of all, you know, D'Angelo Williams to the Steelers. That's a Steelers fan. We we love D'Lo. So uh, thank yeah. goodness we had we had him this year, especially with uh, the injuries uh, that we've had. Yeah. To- last few years with uh, Le'Veon Bell. So he's been a godsend. So we, we're glad to have D'Angelo uh, at Pittsburgh. I, I love the idea that the football gods can't allow Eli to have more rings than Peyton uh, theory that uh, so the Peyton was. I think that's hilarious. So, um, But, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the money obviously is on Carolina, but uh, I'm rooting for uh, for Denver. And I think Denver can win the game. I think if you really, and we did this on, on our football show on Thursday night tailgate a couple of nights ago, uh, when we were talking with uh, several of the, the, the former players that joined us, uh, particularly Tony Collins uh, of the Patriots. But, uh, you know, you look inside the numbers, Carolina, and you can, you know, and Sean, we talk about this all the time, or they talk about this all the time, particularly in college football, but you can only play the teams that are on your schedule, right? Mm-hmm. So in Carolina, beat almost all of them. And to your point, you know, they lost, you know, to, you know, I'm here in Atlanta, so they lost to the Falcons and probably should have beat them. But, you know, you look at the the level of competition that uh, that they played against this year, and it, and it wasn't very yeah. good. They, they played against the AFC South. You know, so you're looking at teams like Jacksonville and, and Tennessee and, and and Indianapolis, yeah. who had a very down season. You know, they played the NFC East, that uh, obviously also had a very down season. Really, the only good team they played the whole season was Seattle, and they they beat them twice. Yeah. So, you know, kudos to them. But uh, yeah. they didn't play a defense like Denver has, and Denver's got a really stout defense. Yeah. It's going to be fun to watch, I think, to your point. The, the, the battle that's going to be interesting to see is Carolina is one of the top rushing, defense, or rushing offenses in the league, and Denver's got yeah. one of the top you know, rushing defenses in the league, and they also got a pretty good pass yeah. defense. So it's going to be interesting to see yeah. how they match up offense versus defense. Yeah, it certainly will. And, uh, you know, I was just listening to some radio stuff yesterday, and, and Trent Dilfer uh, – I think he he really feels that the, the Broncos are going to come away with a victory. I mean, I think experience is always a huge part of it. Um, I know it's just a game, it's a football game, but it's the Super Bowl, Super Bowl Fifty. Um, right. You know, and so Trent was talking about you know that, that Peyton maybe doesn't doesn't utilize the long ball, but maybe breaks it up with a little bit of the run game, some of the short passing games, some of the he was talking about the blocking schemes against his own defense and things like that that might, um, you know, that, that maybe Carolina hasn't faced. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see kind of how they how they game plan, um, you know, for Carolina and what they're able to try to let Peyton do. If he can if he can stay protected, is he able to get the ball out quick and and, and those types of things. I don't know if it'll be a very high-scoring game. It's, it's uh, you know, what's high-scoring anymore in the NFL. I mean, I think it's – you know, I don't know what the over under is, but I would certainly say it'd be under. You know, I would say it'd be under fifty five. Um, yeah, forty five and a half right now. Is it okay? So it's pretty low. So it just depends. Like I said, it's it, uh, Peyton Manning. This is what going to be a sixth Super Bowl, I think. So, um, you know, he he definitely has the experience, and I think he'll uh, he'll come in ready to win. I don't think it would surprise anyone, I mean, that if Denver won the game. I mean, I really don't. I I think Denver's kind of come in under the radar a little bit. Um, And I kind of, you know, I wish that New England would have beaten Denver because I think that, uh, uh, look, I think it would have been a better game um, to see those two two guys, you know, Cam and and, and Brady kind of go up against one another. But how can you argue against Peyton? Um, 
You know, they right. did the things they needed to do. They they, they kind of quietly won all these games. They, they've made their way all, all the way there. So I think it's definitely, you know, Carolina better be ready. And uh, I don't know. I'll be, I'll be watching like everybody else. And, um, you know, I suppose I, I, I'm kind of neutral on it, but uh, um, I'm just looking for a great game. I just love to see a great game. That's all I'm asking for. Right. Right. Hi, right, Sean, before we let you go, remind our listeners uh, again how they can follow you online and over social media. I can be found at uh, Sean McKeel in Facebook, at Sean McKeel PGA and, uh, on Twitter. And uh, is there anything else? LinkedIn, I'm probably on LinkedIn somewhere. So I don't know. I can't keep track. I don't do I do not do some of this other crazy stuff like Snapchat or Instagram or anything like that. I hadn't, hadn't quite caught up. It took me a couple of years to even get on Facebook. But... Uh, uh, you can find me there, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you. That's great stuff. Sean, thanks for uh, taking time out of your morning to uh, to join me again this week on the show. Always so much fun getting the opportunity to chat with you for a while. Uh, we look forward to hopefully catching up with you again soon as your schedule allows because uh, you know, you're know you fantastic to have on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it, Chris. It's always always a pleasure to be with you, too. All right, take care, Sean. We'll uh, we look forward to the opportunity to catch up with you again soon. In the meantime, my friend, all the best to you and to your family as well. I uh, thank you, Chris. You too. Bye bye. All right, take care. That's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. Always a great time getting the opportunity to spend some time with Sean. Chris Sheehan earlier in the hour. What what a great time it was with him as well. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode. But before we close up shop, I want to remind you about our friend and partner, uh, PGA Tour uh, professional Jim Estes and the great folks uh, over at the Salute Military Golf Association doing some great things for our military veterans. Let's take a listen to uh, a word from, uh, from Jim. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S., if you are a wounded veteran interested in participating, or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, they're doing some amazing things there at the Salute Military Golf Association. Please, to find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks to Chris Sheehan and Sean McKeel for joining me today and making uh, today's episode so much fun for me to be a part of. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari and our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find us on the Armed Forces Radio Network, Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, all over the Internet. Every week we are talking to you know, legends from around the NFL and the CFL as well. 
Uh, please also check out, you know, both shows. This one, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, Thursday Night Tailgate. You can find us on Facebook. Give us a like. Let us know what you think about this show. That's important to us as well. You can also find us online. This show, nextonthetee.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. From either site, you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free, folks, and keep up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be as well. All right, uh, thanks again, folks, for listening to today's show. We know you have a choice in a lot of shows that you can listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you're making Next on the Team one of them. Until next week, my friends, hit them straight. You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors, and media members go to tell their stories. Join us same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf. The Ashley Home Store President's Day Sale. Save up to $1,000 on styles for every room. Shop queen beds as low as $3.99. Upholstered queen beds were $9.99, now just $4.99. And reclining sofas and dining rooms, only $7.99. Or pay no interest for five years. Plus, accent chairs from $1.99 and so much more. Hurry in for up to $1,000 off our best styles. Ashley Home Store. This is home. Offer subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payment required. See store for details.